Well, okay, first of all, we have a need for signups, for volunteers to bring in breakfast. After today, I think our sign-up sheet is pretty empty. So it's out here on the table. Go ahead and sign up for another spot. We've got a few more this year. Um, and then today, cleanup is Barb Henderland's group. You guys are on cleanup. And I think that's it. And then Dina and I noticed this morning that the other journal is back. <laughs> so in our decoration, woo! I don't know where it came from, but it's back. <laughs> so we're thankful, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, let's go over our disciplines. And I, I wanna, well, we'll just go over the disciplines and then Sarah is gonna come up and she's teaching us today on the image of God in man, but specifically in women. Um, so go ahead and take out your notebooks, flip them over. Let's read our Wellspring purpose. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So all of February, our lessons have been on the home, Discipline 2. And as I'm sure you've seen from last week's lesson and doing the homework for um, this week, part so much of Discipline 2 is connected to Discipline 1. You just can't get away from that. As you're doing your homework, probably you realized so much of my heart flows out into my household relationships. And that's how our disciplines work. They kind of flow into each other, kind of like waterfalls. Discipline 1 flows into Discipline 2, and Discipline 2 flows into Discipline 3. So... Um, our verse that Jacob taught us on right when we came back from Christmas break is Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We see how important um, it is for us to guard our hearts. And our hearts don't need to be guarded because they're so pure and white, and we can't let anything in that's going to corrupt these wonderful hearts. But by God's grace, they have been made new. We've been declared righteous and we're being made righteous day by day. And so we do need to keep things out, but we also need to be sifting through what's in there, that kind of guarding, that kind of shepherding. And that's what our purpose is for Wellspring. We want to equip each other or be equipped as we come and hear good teaching, um, but we want to encourage each other to do that, to take our hearts before the Lord, to direct them and guide them into his thoughts, his ways, not our thoughts, our emotions, our understanding, um, but to take them to him. And so I feel like Wellspring is just such a good, there's an accountability here with Wellspring, obviously with our homework um, before each other, but even just the fact that Wellspring exists, in my mind, it helps me during the week, um, just to know that there's other women that are pursuing God, pursuing to, um, striving to be in his word, to know him in his word, and not perfectly, um, but other women that have a lot going on in their lives, jobs and families and trials, and yet they're pursuing the Lord. So that's part of the encouragement of Wellspring. All right, let's start with discipline one, um, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And that flows into Discipline 2, which is kind of our emphasis this whole month, the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. 
I wanted to spend a little bit of time on Discipline 2 and read something to you from this book. I read to you guys from it a couple weeks ago. It's a Carolyn Mahaney's book. Basically, it's an explanation of um, Titus 2. The end of it is called, it's the very last chapter. It's called Margaret's Story. It's not very long. And I want to read it to you just because it's so encouraging to me, and I think it will be to you as well. And I think it's so fitting for the topic that we have today that Sarah is going to teach us on. I think it fits with it. Um, don't be discouraged at, at the beginning part of this. I think when you hear it, you're like, wow, this woman is amazing. But just keep, stick with it. Um, she's mentioning her life um, just as a, in general, this characterized this woman's life. Don't think she's perfect. Obviously, she sinned. But anyway, I hope that you're encouraged by this. It's called Margaret's Story. I want to tell you about a woman named Margaret. <clears throat> Most likely, you've never heard of her. She is not a champion of women's rights, a glamorous actress, or a recording artist. She isn't a successful businesswoman or politician. She's never authored a book or traveled the lecture circuit. She hasn't won any humanitarian awards or received academic honors. In fact, she never even went to college. Margaret is simply a faithful wife and mother. She has been married to her husband for almost 60 years. Together, they raised five children, all of whom have families of their own now. Homemaking has been her sole career, and she poured her life into this calling. A typical day for Margaret began before dawn. She fixed her husband's breakfast and packed his lunch for work. I think right there, that's where I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, no. I don't think I can read anymore. <laughs> anyway. Then she woke her children and got them ready for school. The following hours were spent tackling an endless list of chores, laundry, ironing, mending, dusting the furniture, vacuuming the carpet, scrubbing the floors, cleaning the bathrooms, grocery shopping, errands, and cooking. By 5.30 p.m., she had dinner prepared for her family. Afterwards, there were dishes to wash, household tasks to complete, baths for the little ones, homework help for the older ones, and nighttime stories to read. When she finally crawled into bed, only a precious few hours were afforded for sleep. Then it was time to start the routine all over again. In this manner, Margaret tirelessly served her family day after day, month after month, and year after year. Now, if you had the honor of meeting Margaret, you would at once be impressed by her joy. But her vivacious, delightful character is most conspicuous in the arena of her home. She's always smiling or singing. She is excited by the simplest of pleasures. She loves to laugh. So hard, the tears run down her cheeks. And all through the years, she marshaled this joyful energy for the well-being of her family. Never once did her children hear her complain, and not until they had children of their own did they comprehend the sacrifices she had made, for all her sacrifices had been masked by her perpetual joy. Margaret's constant presence in the home provided comfort and security. Her children awoke each morning to the sound of her cheerful voice and returned home every afternoon to her warm greeting. She was always available to hear about their days, call out steady questions for a test, make them a snack, or bandage a scraped knee. At no time was her family an interruption. She would drop whatever she was doing to tend to their most pressing concerns without any mention of inconvenience. And if something was important or exciting to her husband or children, then it was of great interest to Margaret. Her life was intertwined with theirs. If they were happy, so was she. If they were suffering, so was she. No trial or joy was so small or insignificant as to escape her notice. Margaret's being there, not just physically, but with all her heart, left an indelible imprint upon the members of her family. Her lifelong service to her husband and children speaks most eloquently about her love for the Savior. 
God's love captured her heart as a teenager, and at the age of 23, she married a godly man. Together, they imparted their love for God to their children. They modeled righteous character and genuine faith in the home, and they expressed that faith by commitment to their local church, a church that helped found that they helped found almost 50 years ago. As Margaret's children will tell you, whenever the church doors were open, their entire family was present. Margaret's gift of hospitality was an integral part of, the da of daily life in the church. Many a family enjoyed Sunday dinner at her home. As the hostess for numerous women's meetings at her house, she always prepared a vast array of refreshments. If a missionary family, guest speaker, or any visitor came into town, it was taken for granted that Margaret would host them. On one occasion, she even housed a choir. She would clean her small house, cook hearty meals, suggest outings for her guests, and even do their laundry. Along with her servanthood, her joyful demeanor made everyone feel at ease. So you can imagine why anyone visiting Margaret's home was eager to return again, and soon. She freely extended hospitality in spite of her limited resources. Her husband was a construction worker, and though he eventually became a superintendent, Margaret had to manage the entire household with a mere $40 per week. But their financial situation did not deter her from giving. She would consistently set aside a portion of her weekly allowance and slip a small gift to someone facing hard times. For whether financial or practical, Margaret was always tuned in to the needs of others. If someone in the church was ill, in the hospital, or maybe just lonely, Margaret would visit the person. When a baby was born or a family member died, there was Margaret with a meal. For years, she and her husband drove a disabled woman to and from the Sunday evening service. Her charity did not end when she reached retirement age. In her late 70s, she cared for a 90-year-old widow, widow by taking her to the doctor, the grocery store, or the hairdresser each week. Margaret was never enamored by popular or influential people. Rather, her heart was drawn like a magnet to anyone who was outcast, poor, or needy. <clears throat> Those who lived near Margaret were also the recipients of her good deeds. She called her neighborhood, My Little Mission Field. Whenever a new family moved in, Margaret would take them a meal. She and her husband frequently appeared on their neighbor's doorsteps with fresh-picked produce or homemade baked goods. Margaret also extended friendship to the women who lived around her. She supported and encouraged one young mom through 17 years of mothering. Now this woman counts Margaret as dear as her own mother. And Margaret's like a grandma to all the neighborhood kids who loved to come to her house. She would listen to their tales, read them stories, and of course fix them a snack. One young boy in particular loved to hang out at Margaret's house. He followed her around, talking to her while she cleaned. He stopped by early each morning when he walked his dog. He showed up at her door if he missed his bus and needed a ride to school. He even built a treehouse on Margaret's pro property and would try to coax her to come on up. So why, you may, might ask, would an active boy spend so much time with an elderly woman? Well, this child's mother was in prison. His father had deserted him, and he lived with his grandparents who now had a second family to raise. Margaret's home was a place of refuge. No doubt her pleasant company and interest in his daily life provided much happiness and comfort for this lonely little boy. But recently, everything about Margaret's life has changed. Her husband suffered a stroke. She's 80 years old and unable to care for him on her own. So she's had to move far from her home, her church, and her neighborhood and take her husband to live with their daughter. Her days are now occupied with caring for this man she vowed to love in sickness and in health all the days of her life. She feeds him, bathes him, and reads to him from the Bible. Though she did not anticipate this abrupt turn of events, and despite the new and varied challenges before her, Margaret continues to serve faithfully. 
But then serving has been a way of life for Margaret, and it's her servant's heart that has profoundly affected all who know her. While the orbit of her life was never very wide, to her husband, five children, and 17 grandchildren, she means the world. Though she's lived in almost complete anonymity, her neighbors, young and old alike, will never forget her. Forget her. She may not be extraordinarily gifted, but Margaret's fellow church members are eternally grateful for her sacrificial care. Margaret has served without fanfare, never seeking attention or accolades, but one day soon she will meet her maker. On that, on that day, she will receive her commendation from God. Although it's true by worldly standards that Margaret never accomplished anything great, in God's eyes, she has achieved true greatness. Her life can be summed up by the words of our Lord. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Margaret is my example of a Titus II woman. Margaret is also my mom, and it's to you, Mom, that I lovingly dedicate this book. Sorry. Anyway, just find that so encouraging, just the fact that she was so faithful and just how realistic that is, just serving without accolades, with being basically anonymous, but um, meaning a lot to the people that God's put in your life. Wow. <laughs> okay. Discipline three, ministry. With a heart fixed on God <clears throat> and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And we will be talking more about Discipline 3 coming up in the rest of Wellspring, so definitely next week, and I know there's a couple more. But anyway, we get to stay on Discipline 2 today and hear from Sarah. So I know this will be good. There's a lot of information, and Sarah will do a great job presenting it. We're thankful for her. Come on up, Sarah. morning. Um, I put these uh, verses on the board just because um, a, a lesson like this is not that different than the last one you had, where you're, we're using a lot of places, and sometimes it's helpful just to know, okay, where's the next place I need to turn? Because a, a lot of your references are printed in your worksheet, um, but that'll, if that helps you uh, stay on track of where, where you want to be turning in the word, um, you can use that. I want to say just even before we jump into this that um, we do cover a lot of ground in this lesson and um, we can't say I'll, I'll say more than you want to hear and I, I will leave things out that we we probably should say also but um, just remember we're a body if there are things in this that are confusing or difficult or just really different than what you understand remember we're here to help one another grow and to understand that maybe this is some of this might be the first time you've heard it and that's that's good. Um, the point is measured up against God's word and let leaders in Wellspring and in your small group um, and in the church come alongside you and help you examine the scripture and, and evaluate um, what it is you need to understand and grow in. If there's anything here, come talk to me. At the end, we'll talk about a few resources that may be helpful as well. Um, 
But we just really want to use God's word because God's word is true and it doesn't change. So let me pray and we will dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, apart from him, we would have no hope. Thank you that you are a merciful, kind, forgiving, holy Savior. Thank you that what you have purposed to do in us individually and as a church is so much bigger than what we can even begin to comprehend. Oh, Lord, how I pray this morning that as we examine your word, Lord, that you would be pleased to let your word accomplish exactly what you intend in every one of our hearts, Lord, and in us as a body, Lord, that we would more clearly display the beauty of your son. Lord, thank you that your word is absolutely reliable. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we see clearly in scripture that God has designed us to uniquely bear his image as women. So, what does it mean to be a woman? Well, what does God's word say? It's essential that we understand this because there is a good chance um, that some of what we believe, some of our thinking about womanhood or femininity is influenced by our culture and not based on scripture. Our culture today has much to say about womanhood and about gender, and it's doing all it can to influence us and to demand that we agree um, with its opinions on things like gender roles and identity, on feminism, marriage, sexuality, fashion, on rights, and it's all over social media, blogs, news, advertising, entertainment, education, even clothing styles and children's clubs and books. Whether it's a message of equal rights and men bashing, or of unlimited freedom to express sensuality and sexuality, or an all-out assault that aims to blur and erase all gender distinctives, all of it is a grasp for absolute personal autonomy to define one's own gender identity. And it is a full-on rebellion against God. As believers, we need to remember that we too were completely rebellious. Until God gave us new life in Christ, we needed to be taken out of the darkness and brought into his marvelous light. And that's exactly what God mercifully does for every believer. When God causes a rebel to be born again, and to turn to Christ in repentance and faith, he gives us new desires that change the way we are to think about these things and the way we are to live. So let's keep that in mind. And let's cultivate a heart of love and prayer for others, for our leaders and for those rebelling against God's design, that God in his mercy would intervene, that they would humble themselves and repent and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. See, when we understand God's good design, and we think biblically about womanhood, then we can offer hope to those who are confused and deceived about who God made them to be. But that begins with discipline one. Just like Janet said, it begins with shepherding our own heart with God's word and his design for us so that we understand our purpose and our identity, <clears throat> our roles, our relationships, our priorities, even our appearance from a biblical perspective. 
and then we must lovingly and clearly communicate in word and deed how good and how right God's design is. And we want to communicate that to our children, grandchildren, our friends, and others in the church who don't yet have a biblical framework for understanding these things. And we can do it without apology, even though we may be persecuted for speaking the truth. But we do it. We do it in love, and we do it with conviction from God's word. This is certainly not politically correct, but that is okay, because we want to be biblically correct. You have this quote in your notes from John Piper, where he wrote, The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It's taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons, which is what they are after. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. This is the world we live in. This is where godlessness, the exaltation of self against God, has taken us. And it may be very close to some of us. And so that's why we want to look at God's word this morning. Um, that's where we will find encouragement and truth to gain a biblical understanding. Our creator is the only one who can tell us his purpose and his design for us as women. And so we need to know what God's word says. Now, Grace Bible Church has eight biblical convictions. You can find them all on the website, and our lesson is based on number seven, which is biblical manhood and womanhood in our church. Now, as we survey scripture this morning, we will see God doing two things. We will see spiritual equality, which is men and women having spiritual, being spiritually equal before God and before one another, and we'll also see role differentiation to see distinctions and differences between the roles of men and women. This is called the complementarian view of men and women, that within our spiritual equality, men and women complement one another through our different roles. And these two realities are inseparable throughout God's word. It's what God has revealed, and that is why we embrace it. So we don't look to our culture, we don't look to our feelings, our experiences, our opinions. Rather, we want to humbly embrace what God has given us to make him more visible in this dark world. Okay, go ahead and turn to page two of your worksheet. Let's turn to Genesis 1, verse 26, where we find this pattern of spiritual equality and role distinction from the very beginning. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are God's design, male and female, created in the image of God to bear the likeness of God. 
we're distinct. We were created as two different genders right from the beginning, and we are equally God's image bearers. Neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. Together, man and woman were created to exercise dominion on the earth and to fill the earth with the image of God. So what is the image of God? Well, keep your finger in Genesis 1, but go ahead and turn to Philippians 2. Now, while you turn there, listen to these verses. You have these on your worksheet. Colossians 1.15 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Christ, who is the image of God. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And then in John 14.9, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus shows us the image of God. Now in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6, Paul described Jesus like this, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. See, being in the form of God, form is a very similar idea to image. It didn't lead Jesus to promote himself, to fight for his rights, but rather he emptied himself. He, he took the form of a slave. He humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. We see in Jesus that foundational to the image of God is serving and giving, not grasping for yourself, not grasping for your own rights, but of humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. That is the image in which men and women were created to bear this image of humble, self-giving love that we see in Christ. All right, let's go back now to Genesis 1 and notice something very interesting about God himself. Now in verse 26, God begins by using plural pronouns to describe himself. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And then in verse 27, he switches to the singular. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there is a hint from the very beginning of both plurality and oneness in the Godhead. And in the New Testament, this mystery is more fully unfolded in the doctrine of the Trinity. All three persons of the Godhead are shown to be fully God. They have divine equality, and they have different roles. Each of the three manifests self-giving love toward one another. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father and gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people. And the Spirit gives of himself to reveal the Son to his people. They each fulfill a different role without losing any deity. Rather, different roles allow the Godhead to be displayed more fully. And likewise, we get to reflect the image of God through different roles within our spiritual equality. Now let's turn to Genesis 2. 
where we find a more detailed account of day six of creation. Sin had not yet entered the world. In verse 7 we read, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So the man was created first. And then jumping down to verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So God gave the man work to do. Um, God, uh, in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden <clears throat> you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, it, eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So here God gave instructions to the man. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now notice, there is no sin in the world. Man is in this beautiful garden. He has work to do. God himself is talking with the man and instructing him. And yet here is one thing that isn't good. Man is alone. So, God brings all the animals to Adam for him to name. But in verse 20, it says, For Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. An animal was not the solution. God saw that man needed a helper suitable for him. So he formed a woman from the man's own body, from a rib, and God brought her to the man. In verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in this sinless paradise, God's provision for the one thing that was not good was a woman. And from the very beginning, men and women have been different. We were created differently. We were created in a different order. And there were different roles from the very beginning. God assigned work to the man. He gave commands to the man. And in doing this, he was giving a leadership role to the man. And the woman was created to be a suitable helper for the man. And so equally created in the image of God with different roles. Man and woman are perfectly suited to come together as one flesh in marriage. Adam was incomplete without someone to complement him in filling the earth with God's image. So God created woman. Adam did not need a pet. He didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was like him and yet different. He needed Eve so that together they could more fully display the image of God. And all of this is before sin entered the world. Our roles are not punishment because of the fall. Our roles are not punishment at all. All right, let's turn to page three of our worksheet. And we'll turn to Genesis 3. Now, after the man and the woman were created in God's image, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. God gave instructions to Adam. Adam taught them to Eve. 
But in Genesis 3, after Eve gives this answer in which she did not accurately repeat God's command, the serpent responds by slandering God to Eve. Then in verse 6, we read, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So Eve was deceived. She ate the fruit. She gave it to Adam and he ate it too. Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin had equally devastating effects on both the man and the woman. They both sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. In verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Then Adam and Eve proceed to blame shift, and in verse 16, God pronounced curses, while at the same time extending mercy. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. See, there will be pain in childbirth, but there will still be children. They will still experience the blessing of Genesis 1, where God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth with God's image. This curse won't keep the woman from desiring her husband, and God in his mercy will continue to give her the leadership of her husband. In verse 17, um, to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed it is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So again, God's mercy. Man will still work, just like God told him to do when he put him in the garden. But And he will still have food to eat. But now the ground is cursed. Work takes toil and sweat. It's difficult. No part of life, from birth to the grave, has been left untouched by the corruption of sin. And that includes our roles as men and women. Notice in verse 17, the curse is not only because Adam disobeyed the command about the tree. God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. God had created Adam to lead, to provide, to protect his wife. And she was created to be his helper in filling the earth with the image of God. But in their sin, they distorted their God-given roles. Sin did not introduce the roles, but it did distort those roles. Rather than displaying God's image, they became self-grasping and obscured the image of God in them. And this distortion started way back at the beginning of chapter 3 with Eve listening to the serpent. She didn't seek the Lord. She didn't seek her husband's wisdom. She trusted in herself. She became self-grasping and self-reliant. She stepped out from under her husband's leadership and protection and sought to satisfy herself. She rebelled against God. And at that point, God's image in Eve of humble, self-giving love as a helper to her husband has been completely obscured. Adam had his part, and he is fully responsible as well. But in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie rather than believing God himself. Rather than following the leadership God gave her, she turned all that around and led her leader into sin. 
That's what sin does. Sin distorts our view of God, our view of ourselves, and of our God-given role differences. But why did God give us roles? It's because he has something to communicate through them, and sin wants to destroy that through undoing the roles that God has for us. So Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we are no different. Equal rights, men, gender, these are not the problem, like the world would have us think. Uh, we need to understand and acknowledge that our true problem is sin. Sin warps everything, and sin is the reason we need a Savior. All right, so Genesis 1, we saw spiritual equality from the beginning, man and woman equally bearing God's image. In Genesis 2, we saw role distinctions from the very beginning, before sin entered the world. And in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. It marred God's image in both men and women. It did not destroy our God-given role distinctions, but it badly distorts it distorts them. Then throughout the Old Testament, this pattern continues. There are many examples of both men and women who are equally lost in their sin, as well as examples of those who equally bear the fruit of saving faith. And role distinctions continue as well. Men were responsible for the national and religious leadership, from the garden to the final prophets, Adam, Noah, the patriarchs, the kings, the priesthood, the prophets, the pattern is men in positions of authority. And women were also active in the religious life of the nation. Miriam and Huldah were prophetesses, and Deborah was a judge. But what we do not have and account for in the Old Testament is significant. There were never any women priests, or heads of tribes, or kings. When we come to the Gospels, we find that Jesus emphasized the same pattern. Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with men in the midst of a woman-demeaning culture. In that culture, women were possessions, not even considered worthy to be taught God's word. They believed it was better to burn God's word than to teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual truth. Men in Jesus' day normally would not allow women to even count change into their hands for fear of physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view. Jesus used illustrations and images familiar to women when he spoke of a woman hiding leaven in her flour, of, a, of women grinding grain, of a woman searching for her lost coin. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to the woman at the well. In Mary and Martha's home, he taught Mary as she sat at his feet, which was completely countercultural. Jesus healed women. He touched women. And he allowed them to touch him. Remember the beautiful scene of the woman who wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair? Women supported Jesus' ministry from their own means. And after his resurrection, Jesus first revealed himself to a woman. Mary Magdalene, he sent her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not allowing women to be witnesses because they were considered liars. In Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and respect in a way they had never known in their culture. He never, never demeaned women. And all of this demonstrates their spiritual equality. And at the same time, Jesus did nothing to exalt women to a place of authority over men. 
And what he also never did, although he clearly could have, is to choose any women to be among the 12 apostles. That would have been a perfect opportunity to change what God so far had revealed from creation, a time to establish a change for women's roles. But Jesus did not change women's roles. Jesus um, affirmed and continued the pattern that God established from creation. Now, in addition to affirming both spiritual equality and role distinctions between men and women, Jesus also restored our ability to increasingly bear his image of humble, self-giving love. Remember, Genesis 3, sin all but obliterated the image of God in us. But Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In Christ, believers display Christ's image of humble, self-giving love through our spiritual equality and our role distinctions. We see that this pattern then continues throughout the New Testament. Spiritual equality is seen in verses such as Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another. All believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All believers receive spiritual gifts. Believing women are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And women have shared in gospel ministry from the very beginning. And God's design continues to be for men and women to display his image through different roles. It's easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality. We love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and it is. That men and women have an equal need for Jesus, an equal cleansing in his blood, an equal share in his promises. But the gospel is on display every bit as much in the different roles he has for us so that we participate together in displaying his image. We see that in the church at large. Each believer is uniquely gifted for the building up of the body. And together as one body with many members, we get to display something of the fullness of our Savior Jesus Christ. The self-giving love of God is most clearly displayed in the church as we embrace both our unity and spiritual equality, as well as our different gifts and roles. Let's turn to page five of our worksheet and also turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So God has different roles for men and women, both in the church and in the home. So first, we'll see it in the church. First Timothy 2.11 A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, the setting for this teaching was the assembled church, wherever believers might gather together for teaching, worship, and prayer. Now, following this passage in chapter 3 come the requirements for elders and deacons, which restrict these offices to men. The primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in the church is reserved for godly, qualified men. 
women are not allowed to teach men or to have governing authority over the assembled church. However, this is not an absolute restriction on all teaching or speaking in the church by women. Scripture shows us the vital role of women in teaching women and children. We find women evangelizing and praying. Last time we saw Priscilla serving alongside her husband, taking Apollos aside privately to explain to him the way of God more accurately. But women exercise these roles under the authority and teaching of qualified men in the church. Paul explains the reason for male leadership in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. Verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. See, our role differences are rooted in the order of creation. That's why we needed to start in Genesis 1 today. In creating man first, God was teaching that man should take responsibility for leadership in relation to woman. Verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. See, the fall of Adam and Eve shows that the neglect of this divine pattern of male leadership puts men and women in a more vulnerable position and leads to transgression. By basing his argument on the order of creation and the way in which Adam and Eve sinned, it's clear that this command applies to all churches for all time. So page six of our worksheet, um, there are other passages that help explain and expand on what we have seen here, but we're going to summarize the New Testament teaching on the roles of men and women in the church like this, that godly qualified men have the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, teaching, and equipping of the body. So elders and deacons and other leadership roles are offices filled by men. Men oversee all the ministries in the church. Wellspring is overseen by the elders, and there's protection in that. As our leaders, they keep watch over us. They guard us. They are an example for us. They equip, they build up, they care for us, they instruct us. They have the incredible responsibility to display Christ-like shepherding care and his loving servant leadership toward the body. And all believers, men and women, are to submit to them, to honor and affirm their leadership, to be equipped by them. Ephesians 4 describes the relationship between these who are gifted to lead the church and the rest of the body. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, that's us, for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. Our leaders equip us for the work of service, and that service builds up the church. Consider these examples of women in particular. <clears throat> in Titus 2, as older women encourage younger women in godliness, especially in their homes, the church is put in order. Households are protected, and God's word is honored. In Romans 16, Phoebe was a servant of the church. She was a helper of many and likely delivered Paul's letter from Corinth to Rome. Can you even imagine what a trip like that would have meant in that day? In addition, Romans 16 gives us a beautiful picture of just how integral women were in the life of the early church. Paul greeted about 10 different women by name, women who helped, who were fellow workers, who risked their own necks, for the sake of the gospel, <clears throat> who did outstanding work, who worked hard. 
In Acts 9, Tabitha continually abounded in deeds of kindness and charity as she made clothes for widows. The businesswoman Lydia opened her home in Acts 16. In Acts 18, Priscilla labored alongside her husband. And Euodia and Syntyche shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel in Philippians 4. God has given everyone in the church endless opportunities to serve and participate in the gospel mission as we labor under the godly qualified leadership he provides. And in this, God is displaying his loving care and protection and leadership for his people and how we, his people, trust him and follow his lead. All right, go ahead and turn to page seven of your worksheet now. Now, marriage is where spiritual equality and role distinction were first seen way back in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we saw there is still true. Man and woman equally Man and woman equally created in God's image and displaying that image through different roles. Remember, Eve was created to be a suitable helper for Adam. Now, we've already talked about roles in marriage in several Wellspring lessons this year. In Titus 2, we saw the importance of a woman's godliness in her home and particularly in her marriage, loving her husband, being subject to her own husband. And last time in Ephesians 5, we saw again God's beautiful design for marriage to display Christ and the church. John Piper describes the roles of men and women in marriage like this. You have this in your notes. A husband is entrusted with the primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home, while a wife, in her submission, has a disposition to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts as far as submission to Christ will allow. That displays God's image. Now, how that plays out will vary from marriage to marriage, but the general principle is that two become one, each dying to themselves out of a desire to display Christ to their spouse, to their household, to the church, and to the world, to, to display God's image of humble, self-giving love as each fulfills the unique roles that God has designed, and it's all for his glory. And yet, we are all sinners. And if you're married, you're married to a sinner. And there are certainly times when this is especially difficult. But for those who are born again, displaying God's image does not depend on the kind of person to whom we're married or being married at all. 1 Peter 3 shows that a godly wife displays God's image even to a disobedient or unbelieving husband through God's role for her as a wife to submit with a quiet and gentle spirit. So just think about this. God saved us out of being self-grasping. And now we get to give ourselves away to display Jesus. And if we remember that we're being renewed in the image of Christ, of self-giving love, then submission and service is a privilege. It's an expression of what God has done in us. He doesn't display his image to be self-grasping or controlling. As believers, our treasure is Jesus, and he frees us from slavery to self to serve Jesus. And if we're married, we do that by submitting to our husband. Remember that a husband has a very difficult calling to love his wife as Christ loved the church, 
we need to have tender, humble hearts that make that as easy as possible for them. Now, marriage is a beautiful and sanctifying opportunity to display the submission of the church to Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, as believing women, we are enabled to display the image of Christ in our marriage, no matter who our husband is. Now, that said, if you are in a difficult season in your marriage, please reach out, like we talked about at the beginning, reach out to a leader in Wellspring or in your small group, an elder and his wife, so that we can help and encourage you as you seek to be pleasing to the Lord in this challenging situation. All right, now because marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his church, we can tend to miss God's beautiful design for us to bear his image in seasons when we are not married. But consider this, every woman is single at some point, uh, perhaps never marrying or before marriage, even oftentimes after marriage. And all of these seasons are ordained by God for our good, for our good, and for his glory, and for the good of our church as we live out his design for biblical womanhood in that season. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that single women have an opportunity for a unique, undistracted devotion to the Lord. When we're single, there may be fewer demands on us from our household and family so that we have more opportunities for ministry, both inviting others into our home as well as outside of our home. So by all means, we should have a high esteem for marriage. It was created by God. It's a wonderful thing to desire marriage, but marriage is not what completes us. Christ is. Christ is the only one who can. He's the only one who can satisfy our souls. He is the one directing our paths day by day and season by season, and he is trustworthy. So whether we are single or married, let's purpose to live for Christ as godly women and take advantage of the unique opportunities of each season under the leadership God has provided for us. Okay, so we have seen God's purposeful good design for men and women to have unique roles. The pattern in the church and in the home is that men are entrusted with primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, while we as women submit to that leadership in appropriate ways, having a disposition to honor and affirm that leadership as far as submission to Christ will allow. Submission is clearly a central part of biblical womanhood. But let's turn again to 1 Timothy 2 and see how submission is tied to several other qualities which are inseparable when it comes to displaying biblical womanhood and God's beautiful design for us. Now in 1 Timothy 2.9, it says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. He's talking about our appearance. Verse 10, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So now he's highlighting what we do, our service, our ministry, our good works. And now verse 11, which we read earlier, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So he weaves three strands together, our appearance, good works, and submission. First Peter 3 also connects these three ideas in the context of the home. So for the godly woman, her appearance, her works, and her submission 
go hand in hand to display God's image, his humble, self-giving love. All three are expressions of biblical womanhood. Now, submission we've already covered. So let's talk now about the biblical womanhood and opportunities for good works. Now, these are not good works that save us, but these are good works that display the great saving work that Christ has done in us. We're talking about opportunities to serve and to minister. And in a culture that is obsessed with self, self-care, self-focus, self-indulgence, a life of self-giving service can be as countercultural as submission. And there's no shortage of opportunities for good works for a woman who wants to be used by God. For women who have a heart to minister, to see souls saved, broken lives healed, needs met, the fields of opportunity are simply endless. God intends for the entire church to be mobilized for ministry. Nobody is to be on the sidelines. There is much work for Christian women to do, and women are particularly suited for a good deal of it because of the way God has designed us as helpers and nurturers. So what is a woman to do? Well, first of all, be faithful in discipline one and discipline two. You hear that every week in Wellspring because we never graduate from them. They are the foundation under any other ministry. And then consider these opportunities for discipline three, for ministry and service and good works. Every born-again woman should be praying for the Lord's work and for his people. We can join with other people to pray before church. Before church, um, Every Sunday, there's a group that gathers together to pray. And I'm going to read through these pretty quickly. You're not going to be able to write them all down. But if there's one that catches your attention, just about all of these, there are opportunities to do this here at Grace Bible Church. So talk to Janet or Dina or me. We would love to help connect you if there's one of these like, oh, I want to do that. Um, but we all share the duty and privilege of evangelism. There's a group that does street evangelism on Mill Avenue together every Friday night, I think. Um, we must fulfill God's call in Titus 2 for older women to teach younger women, either by reaching out and caring for younger women or by pursuing the qualities that will prepare us to do that, perhaps with another woman's help. We get to participate financially in the Lord's work. We can share our testimony of God's work in our lives with others. We can sing. We can play instruments. We can serve in the church office or at the coffee table or help clean the church or set up communion trays or give rides to people who need transportation. There are opportunities to serve in accounting and IT. We can teach domestic skills and budgeting. We can extend hospitality in our own home, providing meals or other helps to those in need. Maybe you can host a women's night or offer lodging to missionaries or invite others over for a meal and fellowship. Some of you have cared for foster children in your home. We get to nurture and teach children. Serving in next generation ministries and babysitting for others are always needs and they're opportunities to build relationships. We can disciple young women in student ministries. We can counsel and mentor women. We can teach and conduct Bible studies for women. Women can write books and children's materials. There are opportunities on the mission field. Think of Amelia Brink. Cassidy Can, Lori Lehman, Elna Mitchell, they're all serving in Papua New Guinea from our church. And we can serve on a missionary support team and take an active role in caring for our missionaries and letting them know how valuable their service is. We can serve in any number of mercy ministries with the aim of declaring the gospel. 
history is full of examples of women who've been used mightily by the Lord all around the world. And we've already seen many examples in scripture, and there are many more in one of your notebook resources. If you haven't looked at that, give that a look. It's just so encouraging to get a snapshot of all the different ways God has used women in his word. And in all of these, God intends to equip and mobilize the saints for these ministries through godly, qualified men taking primary responsibility for leadership. We get to humbly yield ourselves to the Lord and gladly minister wherever we have the ability and opportunity to serve. Our service matters. We obscure God's image in us if we neglect the good works God commands us to do that he has prepared for us to do. All right, so 1 Timothy 2, there are three strands that together display biblical womanhood. We talked about submission. We've talked about good works. So finally, let's talk about biblical womanhood and our appearance. Now, we began today with seeing how badly we need to look at God's word to understand his design for us as women, because there are loud competing voices in our culture. And one of those clamoring voices, and it has been for years because there is nothing new under the sun, is that of vanity and obsession with self, especially in ways that exploit sexuality and sensuality. And it's big money, it sells, it's being marketed to us in every way, at every age. And yet, it's another attack on God's design for us as women. Its fruit is an obsession with self and every aspect of our appearance whether we entertain secret pride over how good we look or we are insecure about what we feel are glaring imperfections. Either extreme aims to make us self-focused glory thieves as we live for the admiration of others. It tells us to worship ourselves and the world rather than the one true God, the one who is truly beautiful and the only one who is worthy of worship. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 say, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Believer, you aren't your own. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We've been, set, we've been freed from slavery to sin and flee, freed from slavery to the world. We are not slaves of the corrupted cultural standards of beauty. Rather, we're set free to glorify God in all things. Elizabeth Elliot once said, we can't give our hearts to God and keep our bodies for ourselves. So how do we do that? How is our appearance to display something of God's beautiful design for us as women? Well, 1 Peter 2.9, we read that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. That's countercultural. 1 Peter 3 says our beauty doesn't come from our outward adornment, that it should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. See, our appearance, our beauty, is to be an expression of what God is doing in us at a heart level. When we get our attention off of ourselves and onto the beauty and the glory of the Lord, then that becomes the goal of our appearance as well. We want to conduct ourselves and clothe ourselves in such a way that attention is directed to him. 
In True Beauty, Carolyn Mahaney and Nicole Whitaker define true beauty in this way, to behold and reflect the beauty of God. To behold and reflect the beauty of God. See, there's nothing more beautiful than God himself. All of his ways are flawless. And so we don't want to let the world press us into its distorted ideas of beauty, but rather we want God's beauty to be displayed in us. The world's loud competing voice to us is that we can make much of ourselves and feel good about ourselves, flaunt ourselves however we want, flaunting certain features perhaps, and that you have the right and the freedom to dress however you want and expose whatever you want. And it's your body. If you don't like it, don't look. That's, that's what the world says. But it has to be different for the believer. We are called to display something way more glorious, and that is our Savior. So what should our aim be as women? Well, if we profess Christ, our motivation for what we wear is to be distinct and different from our culture's message. Now, while men are fully responsible before God for their minds, for their hearts, for their eyes, it's still true that men can be stimulated visually by the things that they see, even if they don't want to look, even if they are battling to be pure. And when we dress, Im dress immodestly, it sends a visual message to a guy whether or not we intend to. So are we placing an obstacle in their way by how we dress? Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 um, talk about Paul talks about going to great effort to help a brother not to stumble in his walk with the Lord. And we can help others not to stumble by dressing modestly. Giving guys and even other women rest for their eyes. Doesn't that display God's image of self-giving love? So here are some questions we can ask that can help us evaluate, um, to help us discern, is my desire to bring attention to the Lord or to myself? Um, am I being careful not to put a stumbling block before others? So here are some questions that can help us evaluate that. Are our clothes pro provocative? Are they seductive? Do they honor nakedness? I mean, what is the purpose of clothes? Genesis 3? It was to cover, right? It was to cover nakedness, not to draw attention to it, or uh, not to draw attention to our naked skin, especially in certain areas. Maybe you've heard it put this way, that modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. It's a desire to honor God and to serve others and not to promote or provoke sensuality or lust. Modesty means you agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing and set aside self-interest to dress in a way that exalts Christ. So this topic is uncomfortable, but we are mature women, and we just need to be real and talk about this, about God's word and his heart for us. And there are parts of our bodies that would be considered naked, that are for our husband's eyes only. They're not for anybody else's, one of those being our breasts. They are not for everyone to see, in full or in part. It seems like we just see this everywhere. It feels like a normal part of society. But cleavage causes a lot of men to lust. Not, not every man, but many. And so we just need to know that and evaluate. So if you see me, please tell me. Sometimes we just aren't aware of how our clothing looks when we start moving around or carrying things. And we need to ask each other, and we need to help each other, and we need to pray. 
And we need to ask the Lord to help us be discerning, to understand what pleases him, and to be careful about how low, how short, how tight, how sheer, how revealing things are. Where is the attention being drawn? We need to be thoughtful about where something might be appropriate as well. Some clothing might be appropriate, for example, when playing a sport in a gym or a pool where everybody is wearing a, a particular uniform, it might not tra- attract particular attention to any individual. That's something that um, I would say each, each family would need to evaluate for themselves. But even if it's appropriate in that setting, we need to be mindful that outside of that setting, the very same clothing could be a huge distraction and stumbling block to others, drawing attention that should be directed to the Lord, but instead putting the attention on ourselves. We get to display biblical womanhood by being purposeful to dress in such a way not to draw attention to ourselves, but to our Savior. We can't assume that just because something is common that it's necessarily appropriate, and we need to teach our daughters. We need to teach our daughters from the time they're little. So let's ask ourselves, are we being seduced and lured by the world's temptation to care about what the world cares about, to look like the world? Or are we loving and worshiping God by taking care to be purposeful in how we dress? Are we willing to lean on the side of caution? Or are we trying to push the boundaries? So please understand, I'm not talking about a gunny sack. That would be an extreme distraction. Being dowdy, being odd, is not more spiritual. It can even distract people's attention, put people's attention on us rather than on the Lord in the wrong context. But what we want to aim for is what's appropriate for us, for our budget, for the things we do, for the places we go. We can dress fashionably and modestly. It's challenging. It can be challenging to find clothing. We have to be selective, but it's worth persevering to find things that enhance our ability to reflect Christ and not detract from him. Modesty really is about conviction. It relates to who and how I worship and how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, how I display God's good design for me as a woman. In closing, we may need this reminder There will always be loud cultural trends that shift and change, but we must take our cues and definitions from Scripture and not from the culture. And we can confidently trust in that. The Word of God never changes, and that's just so comforting. Without a doubt, in our mixed condition, we will always have to guard against our self-willed mindset in our own hearts. And I hope that after today, you will ask God, where has worldly thinking seeped into my heart? Because if we seek to erase our God-given roles or to minimize them or to cross the role boundaries God has for us, it sends a distorted message to the lost world around us and to those in our home. But when redeemed men and women live and work together as God intended, it's beautiful, it's satisfying, there's joy, and it's God-glorifying. His created order is beautiful. God takes delight in it. What did he say in Genesis 1? It's good. It's good. And so it's no wonder that this is at the center of such a strong battle today. Our lives are about bringing glory to Jesus Christ. And we do that as male and female in distinctive ways. 
That's why God created us male and female, to tell this great love story of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. Okay, uh, I want to pray, but first of all, before we do that, I want to just um, talk about the resources. First of all, though, when you go to your discussion group, because this is a topic that is truly is just saturates our culture, I mean, you walk outside the door and boom, it's right there. Um, there is a temptation for me as well to think about all the examples. Oh my goodness, did you see this? And did you see that? And do you know what they're selling here? And I just want to encourage us, remember what our Wellspring disciplines are. Let's start with discipline one. Um, the most important take home from this is not to point out examples in the culture because we all know what those are. The important thing is for us to examine ourselves and evaluate are there ways I am letting the world influence my view of um, the role that God has for me as a woman? Or are there ways I need to think about how I'm living that out in my home or how I'm training my children? Let's, let's think about this in terms of discipline one and discipline two, especially for um, your discussion group and, and when you work on your homework. Okay, and then you have some resources. Um, this is, I've not read every page of this book. It's a large book, it's kind of a, a reference book, um, but it's super helpful. I, I got a lot of help for today's lesson from it. It's Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Um, it's a collection of essays by a variety of authors. Some are more helpful and trustworthy than others, um, but overall it's a really helpful reference for understanding this topic, um, as well as explaining some of the more challenging verses in scripture regarding women. Um, so if you need a reference or a resource for that, or you would like help looking for something in particular, let me know and maybe I can point you to something in that. Um, and then this book, Modesty, More Than a Change of Clothes, is written to teens. Um, it's, it's a, I think it's a helpful, heart-oriented look at modesty. And then these two, I keep trying to figure out how would you say the difference between them. If you've read anything by Martha Peace and anything by Carolyn Mahaney, that's the difference. They're just really, really different authors and both helpful. Um, in, in all of these cases, be discerning, be a Berean. If you see something there that isn't right, um, isn't biblical, recognize that's because it's written by, it's not breathed out word of God. Um, but if you see something that's really troubling to you, be sure and let me know that. Um, I don't want to be recommending something that's not helpful. Um, and then finally, you also have a link to an article called Let Me Be a Woman. That's actually out of this book. Now, Elizabeth Elliot also wrote a whole book called Let Me Be a Woman, which I read probably 100 years ago. I don't remember it. It's probably awesome. I'm guessing that the article by that title might be from that book. But nonetheless, this, this essay, it's like one page. Um, she, she says in her eloquent, beautiful way, something you can read in five minutes that just took me an hour to tell you. So <laughs> it's, it's really, really good. If you need a recap, if you need to somehow cap, you know, take everything we've heard today and just wrap it up, that is a great article to read. Um, so let me pray, and uh, you guys can go enjoy your time with the discussion groups. Oh, I'm sorry, there was one typo in the notes on page 7 where it said implications. That should have been 1 Timothy 2 if you didn't catch that. That was my fault. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today, and thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, and it is without error, and that it is timeless. Thank you that it is in your word, Lord, you are revealing yourself. 
Lord, you are the God who cannot lie, and so we know that your word is without error. Lord, I am thankful. I pray that this lesson would be useful in your hands to help each one of us better understand and to love your design for us. I pray that our time and discussion group would be fruitful, Lord. I pray that women would spur one another on in love and good deeds. In Jesus' name, amen.